Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department, let's see more. I will arise and go now and go to Innisfree and a small cabin build there of clay and what was made. Nineteen rows will I have there a hive for the honeybee and live alone in the bee-lound glade. No Irish writer has been more identified with the formation of this state as W.B. Yeats. No Irish writer has been more identified with one woman, or indeed has had his face on a note of our currency. Hey, I'm Gary Cook, and you are listening to The Senior Times, and today we are revisiting our look at great Irish writers. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1923 and is considered one of the greatest poets of the entire 20th century. To discuss this literary titan, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Selina Gillis, a Yeats scholar and lecturer in Dunleary Institute of Art, Design and Technology. You are very welcome, Selina, and thank you. Thank you very much, Gary. So, Selina, uh, let's just start uh, with you. What is your uh, path to Yeats, as it were? Um, I think my path to Yeats was probably twite, quite a twisty one, in as many people's are, uh, perhaps. Um, so I went to Oxford um, in, I think, 1994, intending to write a good feminist thesis about the work of Angela Carter. Um, and... I was prevailed upon to instead switch topic and start to look at Yeats and actually I was really interested in the idea of the letter as a form and I was interested in Yeats's correspondence and I had the great fortune there to meet uh, uh, Professor John Kelly who was the editor of the Yeats Letters and so I studied with him for five years but in a way it was the wrong time to be getting interested in Yeats because during the 1990s the great project was to produce this magnificent authorised biography that Roy Foster produced in two volumes. So Oxford was a hive of activity really around, you know, what colour socks Yeats wore on a particular day and date and really kind of mapping out this life. And Yeats was a voluminous letter writer. And because he had his finger in every single cultural pie, both in Ireland and in London, what, you know, the great problem of working on Yeats was the amount of material. So um, it was this massive, vast kind of documentary project, empirical project. And as a young graduate student, I began to feel more and more squashed and felt that the space for speaking about Yeats was getting smaller and smaller. So what I ended up interested in was actually something that I didn't feel anyone could really explain to me at the time, which was what were the connections between Yeats's interest in the occult and mysticism and his interest in nation building. And that really then became the focus of my study. Okay, so for people who may not know that much about the work of Yeats or 
you know, why he's important. Could you give us a, a little insight into why he is important? What's your overview of Yates? Okay, so what I would say is that, you know, looking at Yeats, you have to kind of realize that you're looking at a very long career. So he started publishing in 1885. He died in 1939. And his career spans a time of tumultuous change um, in society, but also in how people consider what poetry can do. Um, and for me, the great pleasure in reading Yeats, particularly from the middle period onwards, is the fact that you have someone who is prepared to think through their own positions in verse. He also, he's just exceptional in his control of syntax and his control of the line. He is, um, you know, he is so steeped in the poetic tradition um, and he has such dexterity with voice and command then of grammar, tone, that, you know, this is what kind of gives some of his work quite a monumental feel. But having said that, he's also able to unpick himself. And one of the things that I think people don't realize about Yeats is that particularly in some key poems like Easter 1916, or indeed Sailing to Byzantium, you see a man who is prepared to parody himself. And that is what's attractive. So he's often represented, in my view, falsely as someone who is intensely earnest and magisterial. And in fact, what we begin to see, I think, is someone who can say, I was wrong. I don't agree with myself. That was me when I was younger. So all of those processes of thinking through a life are there in reading Yeats. One thing I've always wondered about Yeats is how connected was he really with nationalism and republicanism? Because a lot of what he writes suggests to me you know, I was a terrible beauty is born. I know that's it's, it's a bit of a cliche at this point, but mm. I do get the feeling that the consequences of a lot of this, mm. these things did not sit easily with them. Okay, we, I think that's your, you know, your intuition in a way is bang on. But I think one of the difficulties for us as readers now of Yeats is that we're looking at, if you like, a lost class of nationalist, which is the Protestant home ruler. Um, and effectively, you know, one of Yeats's early poems, very early poems, which I think wasn't published in his lifetime, was about, you know, Parnell. And what, you know, what Yeats starts to publish in 1885, which is the year that, if you like, the first Home Rule Bill is narrowly defeated. Um, and what you see is the sense in which that Yeats and so Yeats went to art college, so his pals from art college, but also, if you like, a whole kind of cadre of actually Trinity Protestants, really, are uh, beginning to anticipate what they could do with Ireland if it got home rule back. So this is, if you like, the great kind of white hope through from 1885 to 1890, in my reading of it anyway. And what you then begin to see is particularly in the early 1900s, is that the, you know, the horse coming up on the outside is, of course, Pierce's view of advanced nationalism. Which is a very different thing than the view of a bunch of uh, Trinity students, you know, hanging around Front Square or yeah. New Square or wherever. Yeah, but also the, the, I think it would be wrong to actually downplay the radicalism 
of those Trinity students hanging around Front Square. So what were they doing when they were hanging around Front Square? Well, Yates and his mates, they were going to uh, a couple of clubs. So there was a club called the Contemporary Club, which was set up by a man called Oldham, who was a barrister. And that, I think, met, now I'm going to get the address of this slightly wrong, but I think it met in, in the round rooms in Nassau Street. And effectively, that was a kind of debating society, but off Trinity campus. And it was a place where, in fact, people would thrash out really quite different views. Again, in the idea of, look, we're going to get home rule. It was kind of, you know, this is the idea of home rule. What does home rule look like? So you have... Catholic nationalists, Protestant nationalists, you have quite a number of um, people like Charles Johnson who comes out of, his dad is the master of the Black Perceptory um, up in County Down. Um, so you have, you know, Freemasons, you have this whole kind of group. So they, what happens is they go to Oldham's rooms, they discuss all these political issues of the day, but then a few of them drift off later on the night, off to places like number three, well, this is moving on into the 1890s, number three, Upper Eli Place, which is where the Theosophical Society met. So you could combine an interest in spirit mediums with an interest in, in kind of fairly advanced political thinking. Also knocking around at the time is the beginnings of the suffrage debate. And you have this intense I mean if you know if I was to die and be reincarnated anywhere I would probably go back to 16th of June 1904 a very exciting day obviously in terms of Ulysses but also because what Joyce captures in Ulysses is the incredible churn of ideas that Dublin had at the time so again we can't we we've lost this sense of how multicultural as well Dublin was so when Joyce went off to the Sunshine Dining Rooms um, on number 33 Grafton Street, run by two Theosophist sisters, he was sitting eating his nut cutlet, and the person opposite him was probably Nehru, who was studying insurgents, who was also vegetarian. So you have this kind of weird, radical, kind of theosophical, vegetarian, dress reform, suffrage, Edwardian movement and, you know, then, I mean, the terrible beauty of 1916 is that all of that is evaporated <laughs> um, by effectively a very kind of um, what becomes an, an increasingly restrictive sense of uh, Catholic nationalism through the 1920s. And what do you think is reaction and attitude towards that kind of restrictive Catholic nationalism, the new world order, was. I mean, would, would you think that he would have thought that, that that some of the ideals had sort of come to fruition or that none of the ideals had come to fruition other than getting rid of the Brits, as it were? Well, I, again, you know, I, I'm ho I hate to say this, but the complexity of Yeats's mm -hmm. life is such that trying to fix positions is really tough. I mean, for most of the time that, you know, in the kind of key period, say if you take it from kind of 1900 up to that kind of um, nation building period, if we say 1900, 1922, you know, the arguments, for instance, over the Playboy of the Western world when it was put on in the Abbey, you know, you have this um, 
marvelous kind of, uh, I mean, if only the Abbey were like this now, but you have this incredible, you know, fight break out in the auditorium um, um, where if, over the idea of, um, you know, Singh's representation of the West um, as a place where, after all, you know, you have Peggy and Mike inviting a father slaying Trump to protect her actually from the threat of sexual violence from men returning from the Boer Wars. That's actually what she says at the start. And you have an audience in the Abbey there who are involved in coming the mom in, you know, um, the new Sinn Féin uh, involved in the Irish Ireland movement run by DP Moore. And, and you have this kind of sense of suddenly the West as, if you like, the locus of Irish identity and the kind of sense of uh, both cultural and sexual authenticity and purity, that is traduced by this Protestant playwright on the stage in front of them. So, you know, what we now know is that actually Playboy of the Western World is, is completely put together out of impeccable research by seeing... Um, but for Yeats looking on to this, he, you know, he's on the side of Singh. He says, actually, you know, why suddenly is there this ideological loading? This is what I'm going to oppose. And, you know, you see this through Yeats's life. But if you go back to the start of Yeats's life, Yeats was a member of the IRB. He was inducted in by his dad's old mate, John O'Leary, which is where, in fact, he meets Morgan who, of course, is the daughter of a British army uh, sergeant or officer. So you have this weird time. They kind of go to the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, as a form of kind of interesting nationalist secret society. But that organisation to, to Willie and Maud is a completely different beast to what Pierce will make of it in 1916. So the kind of um, image of, say, poor Pierce and his poetry of kind of red wine and in, in mm. Flanders or wherever he was talking from France, mm. uh, he sounds to me, no, I don't know much about Pierce's poetry, mm. but it sounds to me like this is really quite intoxicating, quite exciting to him. Um, uh, mm. this, kind of the senses gushing with mm. some kind of nationalist fervor. Mm. Uh, uh, I don't get the feeling that Yeats really wasn't, the, the, the reality of any of that was really very far from where he was coming from as a human being. Can we stick with Pierce for a second? Here, I'll give you an example of what I mean about Yeats um, rethinking through his positions. So I'm sure you're familiar with Easter 1916. Mm. And this is a, you know, the poem that uh, Yeats writes immediately after the events um, sends to Maud, um, who of course has been made Maud Gone, who has been made, who is married to Major John McBride, yeah, and is much more radicalised. And he doesn't seem to like that very much. Or is... it, it's it's a lot for poor Willie to handle. Really, is Maud's um, also Maud's charisma, um, uh, but uh, Maud Gone. So, what happens is that Maud is made a widow by the death of her estranged husband, John McBride, in Easter 1916. And Yeats is left kind of grappling with, again, as that second stanza in the poem points out, you know, he knows all of these people. He knows, you know, Pierce, he knows 
Thomas McDonough, of course he knows uh, uh, John McBride, and of course uh, Karl Markiewicz as well, who's spared. Um, but what you see, actually, I want to get back to Pierce, what, although he's described in the poem as um, uh, that other man who rode our uh, who rode our winged horse, meaning, you know, he comes up out of the theatre movement. Um, what you see in the third stanza, or is it the last stanza, um, where he talks about, I'm going to read you a section, actually, if you don't mind. So if you go down to the last stanza, it says, too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. Oh, when may it suffice? That is heaven's part, our part to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child, when sleep at last has come on limbs that had run wild. Now, those lines there actually are in dialogue with Pierce's poem, The Mother, which he wrote right on the night of his execution, that very famous poem. So what Yeats actually does is he pays tribute to Pierce by picking up these lines from Pierce and putting them into his own elegy. So it's a profoundly compassionate act for a man with whom he had profound disagreements. So I think the sense of distance and kind of position-taking and ideology can be too much emphasised. What instead I would prefer to talk about is around this idea of constant negotiation. And so, you know, poem by poem, year by year, Yeats is negotiating the times, just as, you know, we are now trying to negotiate very strong political events. And, you know, in fact, this poem is about the dangers of a fixed position. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. And what he is pleading for in that poem is the idea of flux, flexibility, change, allowing yourself to actually be shifted in your position by the, by the swing and the course of tumultuous events. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro. Make friends with innovation. And welcome back. This is Gary Cook with the Senior Times talking about W.B. Yeats to Dr. Selina Guinness. Uh, and Selina, you are now going to read uh, from the poem, The Second Coming. The Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening jar, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world, the blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs, while all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again. 
But now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. What rough beast indeed. Um, that was uh, uh, Dr. Selina Guinness, uh, beautifully reading The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats. So let's, let's start at the end, if, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, and what rough beast, it's our uh, command at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Like, that doesn't sound good. No. It's Who is this rough beast? Well, you see, this is what's so interesting about this poem, right? Is that this is really... So this is... Let, let's start with the form, okay? This poem is a... Um, what we call noctes, it starts with eight lines. The first stanza is eight lines long. Um, and it, then we have, I think, a sonnet, a 14-line sonnet. So if you add those together, you'll get 22 lines. Um, and if you like, we have a head in the eight-line stop stanza, and then we have a body in the second stanza. Mm -hmm. And... At this kind of moment of the apocalypse, so Yeats is saying, you know, things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. If it's proper anarchy, if essentially this is an apocalypse, then what also collapses is any form of knowledge structures. So what he's describing is a form of chaos where he can identify a shape, but he can't name it. He can't like what's amazing in this poem is that we know reading that second stanza that a shape with lion body and the head of a man all of us in our heads are going aha a sphinx <laughs> but nowhere in the poem does he say aha a sphinx instead what he's looking at is the function of imagining this massive sphinx looming out of the desert and going into the cradle of christian civilization which is Bethlehem. so this poem is really hard to interpret because it comes out of Yeats's own um, spiritual investigations, courtesy of his wife, who is his medium. So Yeats felt that really, Yeats kind of divided up history into a set of epochs. And instead of seeing history as this kind of, uh, the, the passage of world history as this linear progression, um, and this idea of we kind of move continually towards progress. Really what Yeats does is he says that each cycle of history feels like a rebirth of another. And I think actually where we used to think maybe about 30 or 40 years ago that this was absolute barking nonsense. If you look at the cultural commentary about events that are happening today, a lot of people are saying this is beginning to feel really uncomfortably like the early 30s. So, you know, Yeats is trying to intuit these cycles of history. And he felt that at this point, when he's writing this poem in, uh, now I'm not going to get the exact date right, but it's immediately post-First post, post -First World War that he writes this, this poem. It, it appears in Michael Rodbarty's In the Dancer, so it's published, I think, 1920. One, 1921, I think it's written around 1919. But the force of the poem is really this sense in which once you have utter decimation of one system, what is going to come next? And Yeats thought that a fact-accumulating age of Victorian 
high Victoriana sense in which there were certainties, all of that had gone with the First World War. It had also gone in Ireland more locally with, you know, the events of 1916 and immediately the kind of bloodshed of, of uh, the War of Independence. Um, he fear, feels the looming civil war. You know, there is this kind of sense in which he is writing out of a time of bloodshed. And once you remove all certainties, then what you have are old images and old orders that may take shape. So this poem, I think, is deliberately cloudy and deliberately uncertain about what exactly it's seeing. I'm uh, fascinated by a gaze blank and pitiless as a son. Now, is that in the Bible itself? Is there a reference in the Bible that pretty much says those words? It might be. There might well be, Gary. I'm not sure. Um, That line actually is also used, I think, or in the background of one of Heaney's poems, Bogland, about uh, looking at a tarn in the bog. Um, But, I mean, it's such a strong line. I mean, this is, again, about Yeats's syntax, you know, all of these lines are uh, have five beats to them. It's pentameter line, and you know he's using this the oldest form of, if you like, courtly love, which is uh, in the poetic tradition, which is the sonnet. He's using that as his apocalyptic form. So you know this isn't like Allen Ginsberg's Howl, which is this kind of long-lined mess of a poem of crisis. What we have here instead is something tight formal and that intensifies the sense of kind of chaos and the power of the symbolism that is emerging out of it well the symbolism is something i wanted to ask you about yeah. but just the final two lines jay I'll, I'll i'll finish with this because i started with this and what rough beast yeah. in it's our come round at last mm. as as though it's been waiting yeah um, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. So basically what it sounds to me like is if the first coming was yeah. um, the Lord, yeah. then the second coming is not the Lord, which is what it says in the book of Revelation. Exactly. You're right. And it's the Antichrist, in effect. But it's not just, if you like, the Antichrist would come out of a, you know, Revelations would accommodate all that kind of handily inside the Christian tradition. What Yeats is saying that actually this form of kind of rough beast is going to absolutely explode our mythologies about the apocalypse as well. Well, I know that um, you, you talk about the, the first few lines of the poem, turning and turning in the widening gyre. Yeah. Uh, the economist David McWilliams actually used that in oh. uh, in relation to uh, the economy going really, really bad and so on. Uh, and you might think that that's a little bit of a cheat, but however... Its imagery is incredibly strong. Yeah, the falcon is. cannot hear the falconer. Things oh. fall apart. Mm. The center cannot hold. I think he was yeah. talking about um, radicalism on all sides. Yeah. I mean, that is the world in which we live now, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. Yeah, it's this, the Western world, anyway. Yeah, and but it's also interesting because there is that within that idea of you know you could argue, I suppose a historian would argue, when has the when has the falconer ever been truly in command? In other words. Don't we, you know, it, there's an illusion of control between the falcon and the falconer and this idea that the falcon circles around and is entirely governed by the person who feeds it meat, you know, is a, a kind of rather comforting view 
that is really futile, I suppose. And kind of coming after that, you know, you'd be hard. So the reason I'm bringing that up is that Yates becomes through the 20s and 30s really quite nostalgic about that idea of autocracy and the government of an elite. And you can see that in this poem. So the idea that, you know, and what he becomes really interested in, uh, particularly the um, kind of philosophical and educational underpinnings of uh, Mussolini. Which brings us to that question. um, And I only saw this, I have to admit, Dr. Selena Gillis, I saw this in Wikipedia. I'm sorry. I That's no problem. Wikipedia's got masses of information um, all the time. So, well, Google is God, as I say, Dr. Google. So, was he a fascist? Was he attracted to fascism? He was what we would, he was increasingly in the, in the late 20s and early 30s. He is interested in autocracy. He's no populist. Okay, so he doesn't like fascism. He doesn't really doesn't like German fascism, but is really quite interested in Italian fascism. He goes off and spends the summers in the late twenties and early thirties in Rapallo in northern Italy, along with Ezra Pound. And Rapallo is this kind of resort town that attracts people like Hauptmann and amazing intellects from across the across Europe um, and Lauren Arrington has written a great book if you're interested called The Poets of Rapallo where she tracks them all and they all kind of come in the late 20s early 30s so Pound of course goes on and becomes a, um, a, a spokesperson for Italian fascism and, and is then jailed one of the so Yates is interested in this idea of the aesthetic arrangement of society. What do I mean by that? He's interested in the ideas that there are cycles of history, there's culture, high culture, all of these things that can, can kind of be pinned into a form of pedigree. So the idea of pedigree increasingly interests him in the 30s. And all of this leads him very, very close to... Mussolini's ideas of fascism. There are a couple of small saving graces, but they are quite small. Yates is so Yates is Yates is no anti-Semite. Um, Ireland doesn't have Ireland has the blue shirts, and Yates writes some marching songs for the blue shirts. But effectively, he thinks that General O'Duffy is pretty mad. Um, who led the blue shirts. So by the kind of 1933, Yates is no longer interested really in the blue shirts. And he is beginning to have arguments with a couple of, well, one woman in particular who's briefly his lover, Ethel Manon, who is a whole, just a complete Hitler lover in 1936. So he's having a row with her in his correspondence about her enthusiasm for Nazi Germany. But we, what we see is someone, yes, who is attracted to that, but who is worried by the populism and the demagoguery. So if you like, he's a highly snobbish, elitist, pedigree-led, authoritarian thinker. And I always think it's really great that he dies at the end of January in 1939. It lets him off the hook. 
when it comes to what is going to come next. So um, the person to read on that is uh, W.J. McCormick's book, Blood Kindred, where he examines this idea of whether Yeats was a fascist or not. Roy Foster's biography really minutely charts Yeats's um, involvement with right-wing thinking through this period. Isn't a fascist. Fascist is as a fascist does, really. He didn't live his life like that, though, did he? No, and I, it comes from an interesting place. And I, I, I'm, look, I'm no apologist for this. He's also tightly wound up through the 20s as a senator by things like the Vigilance Committee, um, the Censorship Act, the ban on divorce. He wasn't big on the GA's new way of going about things. And he talks a lot about, doesn't yeah. he talk about, you know, if you want to uh, inculcate the North in, you know this, but don't don't make it less attractive for them or really unattractive. Yeah, I wanted to, exactly. He has, he has a, he talk, I mean, after all, you could argue that in some ways, you know, the Reformation is all founded on a, an incredible divorce. Um, so you know, there is this, there is this sense in which actually he sees uh, divorce as a minority rights issue, um, Protestant minority rights issue in the, the 1920s. So there is a sense in which in a t- more clerically organised state as happens through the 20s in Ireland, Yates is struggling to cast about, if you like, for some form of political system. Now, that would be perhaps wrong. You could argue that there is an autocratic strain right through his thought. He is interested in how elites work and how the idea of the power of the elite, how that can be harnessed. So that that brings him closer and closer to Europe and moves him out of Ireland. You know, that, you know like that is no country for old men the young in one another's arms at the start of saying to Byzantium shows him leaving Ireland imaginatively and citing himself in the holy city of Byzantium as a place where, you know, you've got a, a, a strong sense of the aesthetic, that, you know, as, and yet it's also this multicultural city, Byzantium at the time, you know, Greek goldsmiths are there hammering out the golden tiles inside Santa Sevilla in what was then Constantinople. So Yeats takes himself into a kind of golden city in that poem. And really what he's looking for, I think, is there's a kind of, there's this huge sense of loss that some of that splendor of like the Irish country house, um, cool park he's seen, you know, sold by Lady Gregory. There is a sense in which he never he never thought the ascendancy as a class were really very interesting because they were only interested in hunting and they weren't interested in art. But Georgian splendor is something that he misses, and that golden city is something he's looking for. I want to ask you a little bit before we wrap up. I could talk all day about well, you could talk all day. I can ask questions yeah, all sorry day. Sorry about that. No, well, no, it's <laughs> fascinating stuff. Um, I wanted to ask you briefly about uh, the lady in his life, or not in his life, the case may be, um, Maud Gahn. I've, ne- I've never heard one person so uh, so, so associated with uh, yeah. unrequited love, uh, apart from Morrissey, I suppose. <laughs> but, but, but so, okay, so what was the story of Maud Gahn? Oh, Lord. Was um, she really that much muse to him? So there's a heartbreaking line in his poem, The Tower, 
if we, because I'm going to let Yates answer that. Um, in the tower, which is, um, he has a long digression at the start, which culminates in this question, which is, um, I'll just read it, a tiny section from it. So he starts out section one in the tower, what shall I do with this absurdity? Oh heart, oh troubled heart, this caricature, decrepit age that has been tied to me as to a dog's tail. So he's thinking of his heart, his passion, his romantic love, as actually kind of somehow making a mockery of his aged body. And he answers that question as to what to do with the heart um, eventually, in the last stanza of section one, um, does the imagination dwell the most upon a woman won or woman lost? If on the lost, admit you turned aside from a great labyrinth out of pride, cowardice, some silly over subtle thought, or anything called conscience. And so, and then he says, and that if memory recur, the sun's under eclipse and the day blotted out. So Maud is the constant negotiation of that question of his heart and romance. And yet he marries this incredible woman, George Hydlees. So with Maud, um, her kind of, her polemicist passion for you know, leading, as he says, you know, hurling the little streets on the great, her ability to kind of hold a crowd, her ability. She went around in the 1890s, you know, in famine-stricken Mayo and gave these speeches um, um, that, you know, attracted monster meetings like O'Connell, which is all the more incredible when you consider that Morgan was essentially English. Um, so she she becomes this icon, whom he, after all, writes the part for. He writes the script for that iconography in Kathleen Houlihan. And Maud and he have this intense, passionate friendship. And fair play to her, because she allowed that friendship right through life. They got together once in 1908. They had some liaison. They had a liaison, yeah. and effectively, but they... Um, and they also shared, they kept dream notebooks um, and Yates and Maud separately write about this incredible dream that they shared, which was very fiery. Um, and uh, they also were both engaged in and interested in divination, tarot, horoscopes. So um, they kind of remained committed or they, they kind of had this kind of intense spiritual connection which I'm sure Yates hoped, <laughs> hoped for more. Maud is so weird because, I mean, like her politics, you know, like she she is an anti-Semite, okay. you know. Um, and, I mean, her she was carrying this extraordinary grief through the 1890s. So she had had an affair with a French journalist called Lucien Mirois in the 1890s, late 80s, early 1890s. And they, she'd had a child, and the child, Georges, died and was buried in 
somewhere like Pearl Shares and family can too. Maud returned on the same boat that brought Parnell's body back to Ireland. She was wearing black. Everyone assumed she was in mourning for Parnell. She was actually quietly mourning the loss of the secret child. So five, four or five years later, she gets back in touch with Luciana Wilde where they continue a kind of liaison. All this time, you know, Yates and her are spending a lot of time together. Still, again, kind of passionate correspondence. And, but she gets back with Lucien Louvois and um, they, she decides that she wants to try and incarnate the spirit of her dead child. So she descends to the tomb of Georges, the first child, with Lucien. They have sex on, in the tomb in order that the spirit of the dead child can incarnate in the daughter who becomes Isolde. So Yeats then in 1916, after John McBride is executed, goes to France. He proposes to Maud, who says no. And he becomes very close to Isolde, who is a young woman in her 20s huge age gap there's no physical there's no suggestion of any physical impropriety but basically Yates spends the time with Isolde effectively as a former teacher and at the end of summer says to Maud may I propose to Isolde and she says yes and Isolde turns him down and within months then he meets and marries George Hardley's isn't there some suggestion that he he his libido came back to him and there was some talk uh, about monkey glands. Yeah, it's not monkey glands. Uh, so, sorry, this is going to get very agricultural. Um, but basically, there's a there was a sexologist called Norman Hare who effectively was a kind of Harley Street quack. Um, and I imagine the market for restoring potency to men was quite a kind of lucrative one um, in Harley Street. But anyway... Yates goes and knocks on the door of Norman Hare and he has this procedure called the Steinach operation. And the Steinach operation is actually a partial vasectomy. And that is what Yates gets done in the early 30s. And then he has, he does have the succession of, of lovers. But at the same time also he becomes through, his, in his old age, he becomes very friendly with um, and corresponds to a number of aristocratic lesbians and goes to stay in their houses and um, they look after him. Edith Shackleton healed and Dorothy Wellesley. Uh, and they're on the edges of, of the Bloomsbury set. So at that point in the 30s, he's moving in this really interesting circles. So he's, I mean, look, he's just a fascinating life. I mean, Yeats is so such a large life that you can lose yourself in it forever for anyone interested. If you are interested in the life, which is an amazing life, it's a whole history of Ireland, it's complex, it's mm. full of digressions, but read R.F. Foster's two-volume biography. It's just a pleasure. It's very funny, very engaging, and it's brilliant and totally reliable. If you're interested in how understanding how to read the poems alongside the life. Terence Brown's biography, 
A Life of W.B. Yeats is perhaps a better reading of the actual poetry. Mm -hmm. But those are the books that I kind of sent you. And then if you're interested in this idea of Yeats and Fascism and the poets of Rapallo, then Lauren Arrington has a very readable, beautiful book. Um, it's simply called The Poets of Rapallo, where she looks at how these summers were formative for these men, uh, like Pound, Yeats, Hauptmann and others in this Italian town. I was going to talk to you a little bit about the, just briefly, because we we're kind of running out of time, but um, the symbolism, the symbolism that he uses, I mean, there's a lot of, yeah. you know, uh, swans and swords yeah. and, yeah. you know, sun and moon yeah. and all yeah. the rest of it. Um, he seems to use them incredibly skillfully. Yeah, well, that comes out of effectively his study, his his Mesomenus study. And again, if you're interested in any of this, Actually, a wonderful treat for yourselves is to go to the National Library of Ireland's W.B. Yeats exhibition and give it the time. It's a fantastic exhibition where all of this is kind of um, explained and the material culture, the, the, the beauty of his early books, that's all laid out for you there as well. Um, but yeah, he, you know, he, what he does is he takes the great kind of cargo of mythology that you know were gifted by you know greek roman egyptian mythology and world religions and you know he takes that enormous cultural religious symbol symbolic cargo and he brings it into ireland and he brings it into irish poetry and he doesn't do it it's not there for decoration it's there for thinking and philosophy and investigation and he asks weird questions and he opens up our minds to looking at things from outside our own traditions and I think that is that is one of his great legacies finally before we uh, conclude this I, I was going to ask you I mean what is your favorite poem or what is your what is the most beautiful piece of writing for you that you would I take to a desert island. Okay, well that's hard, but I so I love um, meditations in time of civil war. It's um, it's so complex. It I mean I would spend years thinking through each of its. Uh, I don't fully understand it, which is another good reason for taking it. Um, um, for something that breaks my heart actually sailing to Byzantium breaks my heart in a way because it's in dialogue with Keats's Ode to a Nightingale and um, if you took sit those two poems side by side you know Yeats is kind of curiously vulnerable as the questioner in that poem although it's not read often in that way um, so I think those are some of my favourites and yeah, it's a hard question, Gary. <laughs> Is there anything that you would like to read out with? Okay. I should choose something small and simple, probably, um, and uh, that perhaps is a bit tricky. Um, okay, well, this is, a, this is a, a, an odd one to finish, okay? It's, it's not simple, but um, I think it is kind of amazing. It's Cúhalan Comforted. It's from his last poems. And this is, you know, written when Yeats, uh, very near the end of Yeats's life. A man that had six mortal wounds, 
A man violent and famous strode among the dead. Eyes stared out of the branches and were gone. Then certain shrouds that muttered head to head came and were gone. He leant upon a tree as though to meditate on wounds and blood. A shroud that seemed to have authority among those bird-like things came and let fall a bundle of linen. Shrouds by two and three came creeping up because the man was still. And thereupon that linen carrier said, Your life can grow much sweeter if you will obey our ancient rule and make a shroud, mainly because of what we only know the rattle of those arms makes us afraid. We thread the needle's eyes, and all we do, all must together do. That done, the man took up the nearest and began to sew. Now must we sing and sing the best we can, but first you must be told our character. Convicted cowards all, by kindred slain, or driven from home and left to die in fear. They sang, but had nor human tunes nor words, though all was done in common as before. They had changed their throats and had the throats of birds. That was Dr. Selina Guinness reading us out with WB Yates. Thank you very much, Selina. Um, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and, uh, and hopefully we will talk again. You too, Gary. Thank you very <laughs> much. Nineteen rows will I have there, a hive for the honey bee, and live alone in the bee lounge glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the crickets sing. And will phone poke a newowet, and will knappy no foom nis orjoet, nis eskalehusaj. Faker na phone in Tokatal Gwyn on show, Eggdaro, on von Klishta is Dani, Gidi Gohan la Hai Glina, August Taskina, Tarod Egan, Gogoktina, Tanismo Olis, Egg, Daro, Dakam.